The Guardian. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Marcus Jones. Yeah. One please, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Marcus Jones. Mr Speaker, with the average 60-year-old living 10 years longer than in the 1970s, public sector pension reform is essential. Will the Prime Minister ensure that reform is fair for my constituents, both in terms of the taxpayer and public sector workers? Yeah. My honourable friend makes an important point, and the Chief Secretary to the Treasury will be making a full statement to the House. It does seem to me absolutely vital that we do something that is both fair to taxpayers and also fair to public sector workers. The costs of our, state, of our public sector pension system is up by a third in the last decade. It isn't fair to go on as we are, but the new arrangements must be fair to people who work hard in the public sector and on whom we all, are, all rely. And I can tell the House that low and middle income earners will actually see getting more from their public sector pensions. Everyone will keep what they have built up so far. Anyone within 10 years of retirement will see no change in their pension arrangements. And at the end of all this, people in the public sector will actually still get far, far better pensions than people in the private sector. And I really think it is time that the party opposite was clear that they do not support strikes later this month. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, does the Prime Minister believe that growth of half a percent over the last year and unemployment at a 17-year high point to the success or failure of his economic plan? Well, obviously, everybody wants the British economy to grow faster. That is what everybody wants. But I have to, I have to, uh, I have to say to the Honourable Gentleman, yesterday's figure of 0.5%, which was better than many people expected, isn't it, isn't it noticeable that he cannot even bring himself to welcome news like that? I think we all have to address is this. There is a global storm in the world economy today. And it is in our interest to help others confront that global storm, but we have also got to keep the British economy safe. We won't keep it safe if we add to our deficit, add to our debt, and put interest rates at risk. Mr Speaker, first he blamed the Labour government, then he blamed... Then he government, then he blamed Europe. Yesterday he was apparently blaming his cabinet colleagues for the lack of growth in our economy. The truth about this Prime Minister is when things go wrong it's never anything to do with him. Now, now, now let's ask about another one of his flagship policies. The Business Growth Fund launched nine months ago with the banks. Can he tell us the number of businesses that the Business Growth Fund have made investments in? First of all, the problem... The problem... The problem with... Um, the problem with pre-scripted questions is he doesn't listen to the first answer. I didn't actually, in my first answer, blame the last Labour government, but if he'd like me to, I can start right now. Labour government that left us the record debts, the record deficit. And it's 
this government that is having to deal with that. Now, he asked about the Business Growth Fund. This is one of the schemes to ensure that banks are lending alongside, alongside the Merlin scheme, which is actually seeing an increase in lending to small businesses. That is a record we can be proud of and something he didn't achieve. Mr Speaker, we all know by now with this Prime Minister that when he blusters like that at the dispatch box, he's either, he's either too embarrassed to answer or he doesn't know the answer. So let me help him. The Business Growth Fund was announced nine months ago. It has five offices. It has 50 staff. How many investments? A grand total of two. <laughs> Mr Speaker, it's becoming a pattern with this Prime Minister. Fanfare announcement, then radio silence. He said in March, I'm going to watch those banks like a hawk and make sure they deliver. So what is he going to do to get the business growth fund moving? These are the banks he completely failed to regulate year after year. Yes, yes. And these... The House is getting order. Mr Campbell, calm yourself. The House is getting far too excited. It's only six minutes past. Order. Both the Prime Minister, let me say it at the outset, both the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition must be heard. It's called democracy and free expression. The Prime Minister. Let me just give him the figures for what has actually happened under the bank lending schemes of this government. We have $190 billion of new credit this year, up from $179 billion last year. That is a huge increase. There is $76 billion of this is for small and medium-sized enterprises. That is up 15% on last year. We are seeing more bank lending under this government, but we're also seeing the bank levy so that people in the banks are helping to pay to deal with the deficit that his government created. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, a totally hopeless answer. One of, his own, one, of his own, one of his own schemes, one of his own schemes, the Business Growth Fund, they trumpeted the announcements and they've got not a clue what is happening to their own scheme. Now, now Mr Speaker, businesses are struggling, but one group in our economy is doing very well indeed. Over the last year, over the last... Over the last year, when many people have seen their wages frozen, directors' pay rose by 49%. Now, the Prime Minister expressed concern about this last Friday. But the public want to know, what is he going to do about it? Well, let me tell you exactly what we are doing about it and will do about it. It's this government that introduced the bank levy, more raised in one year than the bonus tax that they created. It is this government that has increased the fees that non-DOMs have to pay. It is this government that has had an agreement with Switzerland and with Liechtenstein to get hold of people who put money overseas. It's this government that's actually seen lower bank bonuses. But where I agree with him is I think the Archbishop of Canterbury speaks frankly for the whole country when he says that it is unacceptable in a time of difficulty when people at the top of our society are not showing signs of responsibility. It's this government that is now consulting. But it is this... It is this government that's consulting about proper measures to make sure we get transparency in terms of boardroom pay, proper accountability, more power for shareholders, all of those things we are doing. And I have to ask him, if he's so keen on this agenda, what did he do for the last 13 years? I'll tell you what we did, Mr Speaker. We introduced the 50 pence rate of income tax that he and his Chancellor want to abolish. 
agree something needs to be done about top pay. Now last, now last, Conservative members should just calm down, calm down, follow the Prime Minister's advice, just calm down. Last March, last March, his fair pay review, which he set up, recommended that the government should require by January of 2012, so January of next year, that every top company should publish how much the highest earners get paid compared to the average, average earner. Now that type of transparency, Mr Speaker, is the least we should expect. Can he confirm that this will happen from January of 2012, yes or no? What he will know is, unlike the last government that did absolutely nothing, is we are consulting on a whole series of steps to bring responsibility to the boardroom. But I have to say, Mr Speaker, we are a little bit... We are a, a, a little bit wary about accepting lectures from a party that told us they were intensely relaxed about everyone getting filthy rich. A party, a party that had a capital gains tax system, so people in the city actually paid less tax than their cleaner. I, I know he's forgotten all these things, we remember them, and we've done something about it. Mr Speaker, another report to government, another failure to act. The truth is, the truth is he's sat on Will Hutton's review for the last nine months and he's done nothing about it. And that's why the recommendation is not going to be implemented. Mr Speaker, that is the truth about this Prime Minister. He says we're all in it together, but he lets the top 1% get away with it, while the other 99% see their living standards squeezed and lose their jobs. That's why people are increasingly saying... This is a Prime Minister totally out of touch with their lives. I have to say, in the week when the Labour Party's hired a former tax exile to run their election campaign, he's got a bit of he's got a bit of nerve to come and lecture us on that. Thirteen years they had to regulate the banks, they did nothing. Thirteen years they had to deal with bank bonuses, they did nothing. And now in opposition, their message to business is give us some money, you can run our election. Jason McCartney. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Cable theft has cost the rail industry £43 million over the last three years. And they've even drafted in Gurkhas to patrol the network. Meanwhile, homes and churches are being pilfered of their lead and copper. And in the past month, one churchyard in Huddersfield has had 169 memorial plaques stolen for its metal. Will the Prime Minister join me in saying now is the time to legislate to stop these stolen metals going to merchants? My honourable friend makes an extremely important point, and I have to say, I think the theft of metal, particularly from war memorials, is an absolutely sickening and disgusting crime. We are working with the Association of Chief Police Officers to put in place an action plan to deal with this. It does involve looking again at the whole regulation of scrap metal dealers. We're determined to do that to put a stop to this really appalling crime. Mr. Nigel Dodds. People in my constituency in North Belfast and right across the country are desperately worried about the increasing costs of gas, electricity, home heating oil, how they are going to keep their homes warm this winter. What can the Prime Minister tell the country more that he is going to do to try to help people in this situation? And in particular, will he reverse the cuts to winter fuel allowance, which hits senior citizens? And it isn't simply good enough, surely, to say that he's following the plans of the opposition. He's done so many things differently from the opposition. Why isn't he going to do something different in winter fuel allowance? 
On the issue of winter fuel allowance, we have kept the plans that were set out by the last government. I think that's the right thing to do. On the cold weather payments, we've actually taken the increase in cold weather payments. That was meant for one year, and we've maintained that. So if there is a particularly cold winter, people will be getting that help. The other steps that we're taking is making sure that energy companies give people proper information about the lowest tariffs that they can get. And we have proper reform of the energy market. Again, something that the party opposite has now suddenly started to talk about, but did absolutely nothing about in government. Mr Alan Cairn. Mr Speaker, public sector pension reform should be achieved through negotiation and compromise. Does the Prime Minister agree that it is wholly irresponsible and downright destructive for senior politicians of any political party to support strike action whilst negotiations are ongoing? I think my right hon. Friend is entirely right. This, I think, is a very fair offer to hard-working public servants to say that this is a strong set of pension reforms that will give you pensions that are still better than anything available in the private sector. And frankly, to have a Labour front bench that is silent on this issue, with their education spokesman actually encouraging teachers to strike, is the height of irresponsibility. Susan Ellen Jones. My constituents, Alan and Linda Eastwood, have a son who's been serving in our nation's armed forces in Afghanistan. In common with the Royal British Legion, Mr and Mrs Easton regard the Prime Minister's decision to abolish the post of Chief Coroner to be a betrayal. Can the Prime Minister tell us why he thinks he's right on this issue and that the Royal British Legion is wrong? This is a a very important issue and I have discussions with the British Legion about it as I know my right hon. Friend the the Lord Chancellor has as well. The point about the Royal British Legion's uh, this issue is that the current proposal for the Chief Coroner's Office to be established would actually involve something like £10 million of spending that we think the money would be better spent on improving all coroner's services across the country. We're listening very carefully to concerns expressed in both Houses of Parliament about this issue. But what really matters is, are we going to improve the performance of our coroners? That is what service families want, that is what I want, and that is what we'll deliver. Mr David Evernett. Thank you very much. Public sector workers in my constituency work extremely hard to deliver essential public services. And I know that my right honourable friend will agree with me that we value these services tremendously. Can my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, reassure these workers and confirm that the government's reforms, very necessary reforms that they are, but will ensure that these services are sustainable and remain among the very, very best? I can certainly do that. I think my honourable friend makes a very important point. The cost of supporting public sector pensions has gone up by a third in the last decade. We're now spending something like £32 billion. It's a major item of public spending. And obviously we're taking taxes off people, including in the private sector, who have less good pensions, to pay for that pension provision. But under our scheme, I believe it is a fair scheme. For instance, a teacher retiring on a salary of £37,000 after a full career would actually retire on a pension of £25,000. £5,000 in future, that is more than the £19,000 that they would currently get. This is a fair set of changes. The less well-off are really protected. The low-paid in the public sector won't have to pay the increased contributions. And I think, frankly, the whole House of Commons should get behind it instead of playing with strike action like the party opposite. Mr Alistair Darling. 
Mr Speaker, when the Prime Minister goes to the G20 meeting over the next couple of days, will he try and persuade his colleagues of the urgency of coming up with some detail on the Eurozone settlement reached last week? It's not at all clear how on earth Greece is going to get out of the difficulty he's got, even if this referendum passes. European banks will need shoring up well before next summer. And as for the new rescue fund, which may be needed sooner than we think, it doesn't actually exist. And will he not accept that the G20 now needs to show the same urgency and sense of purpose that it showed two years ago when it met in London? Otherwise, far from getting ahead of events, governments are going to be condemned to being dragged along in their wake. I think the right honourable gentleman is absolutely right in what he says about the urgency of this G20 meeting and the necessity of its agenda. I think some progress was made at the European Council meeting a week ago where actually for the first time they did accept a proper write-down of Greek debt which has to be part of the solution. Also a proper recapitalisation of Europe's banks done to a credible test rather than the incredible test that we've had in months gone by. And the the final element which he refers to rightly which needs to have more detail added and more substance added, and that is to make sure there is a proper firewall to stop contagion in the Eurozone. The need has got even greater. Frankly, of course, we can't involve ourselves in Greek domestic uh, politics, but it's become even more urgent to put meat on the bones of these plans to show that we're removing one of the key obstacles to global growth, which is the failure to agree a proper plan to deal with problems in the Eurozone. Hollabone. According to the government's own projections, Britain's population is set to increase from 62 million today to 70 million by 2027, with two-thirds of this increase being driven by immigration. Will the Prime Minister commit to stem this increase by breaking the almost automatic link between foreign nationals who come to work here subsequently being granted citizenship? We are committed to doing exactly that, and I think my honourable friend is right to raise this issue. I think that proper immigration control and welfare reform are two sides of the same coin, and this government is committed to controlling immigration properly, but also putting British people back to work. As I say, the two work together. And I can tell him that today we've announced, in terms of the illegal immigration that comes through the student route, we've actually announced that more than 450 colleges will no longer be able to sponsor new international students because they weren't actually properly established to do that. These colleges could have brought in more than 11,000 students to the UK to study each year. That is just one example of how this government is living up to its promise to get a grip of immigration. Speaker, does the Prime Minister agree with the vast majority of people that smoking should be banned in vehicles where there are children present? And will he encourage the government to adopt the contents of my 10-minute rule bill, which aims to put an end to it? Uh, I do think it's right. I think the smoking ban, and I have to admit as a former smoker and someone who believes strongly in liberty, someone who didn't, who didn't support it at the time, it has worked, and I think the smoking ban is successful. I am much more nervous about going into what people do uh, inside, a, inside a vehicle. I'll look carefully at what he says, uh, but I think we have to have a serious think before we take that step. Mike Crockart. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The, the Prime Minister will be aware of Citigroup's report issued yesterday on green energy investment in Scotland. Does he agree with me that this report very ably demonstrates that the benefits of green energy in the UK are only unlocked by combining Scotland's renewable potential with the large-scale investment made possible by the UK 
And does he agree that a drawn-out independence referendum is a serious distraction from that? I, I think uh, my honourable friend makes an important point, and actually a major financial institution warned yesterday of the dangers of investing in Scotland while there's this uncertainty about the future of the Constitution underway. And I think it's very important that we keep our United Kingdom together, and we stress that when it comes to vital industries like green technology, the combination of a green investment bank sponsored by the United Kingdom government and the many natural advantages there are in Scotland can actually make this a great industry for people in Scotland. But we'll only do that if we keep our country together. Dr Alan Whitehead. Just after the election, the Prime Minister said that his government would be the greenest ever. Does he still take that statement seriously? And if he does, will he personally intervene to sort out the appalling chaos that is resulting from the slashing of feed-in tariffs in six weeks' time for solar PV, leading to substantial job losses, chaos in the solar PV industry and devastation for hundreds of community renewable projects? It, it, it is this government that has set aside £3 billion for a green investment bank. Much talked about in the past, never done. It's this government that's put in place a carbon price floor, one of the first uh, governments anywhere in the world to do it. It's us that put aside a billion pounds for carbon capture and storage. So this is a very green government living up to our promises. Absolutely right. Jonathan Evans. Would the Prime Minister join me in congratulating the pupils, the staff, uh, at Whitchurch High School, a foundation status comprehensive school in my constituency, the former school of Sam Warburton, the outstanding Welsh rugby captain of Gareth Bale, the impressive footballer at Spurs and Wales, and also, also of Geraint Thomas, the gold medalist, who will be receiving the award as State School of the Year. The drift of the Honourable Member's question, the Prime Minister. I have to say it's a very impressive list of sports personalities that have attended this school. I don't know what they put in the water, but I think we'd probably all like to have some. But I certainly join my honourable friend in congratulating such an excellent school. Katie Clark. In the past four years, six children and two adults have been killed in dog attacks and some 6,000 postal workers have attacked each year. There's a party <coughs> agreement that we need to tighten up the law in this area. Would the Prime Minister take a personal interest and make sure that legislation is brought forward as soon as possible? Uh, the Honourable Lady makes an important point because legislative attempts at this in the past haven't always been successful and haven't always captured uh, the breeds that need to be uh, captured. So I'll certainly take a personal interest and perhaps I can write to the Honourable Lady and set out what the Government intends to do. Mr Simon Hughes, following, following the Prime Minister's answers a moment ago and given the huge anger about the pay for the top 100 directors, can he give me a personal assurance that he is committed to the transfer of power over pay from the boardroom to the shareholders of our companies? I do want to see that happen. I think the answer to this is much more transparency about the levels of pay, much more accountability and strengthening the hand of shareholders. And there's something else we need to do, which is to make sure that non-executive directors on boards are not the uh, usual sort of rotating list of men uh, patting each other's backs and increasing the level of remuneration. I want to see more women in Britain's boardrooms, which I think would have a thoroughly good influence. David Lamy. <laughs> The House order. Order. The House must calm down. I want to hear Mr. David Lammy. Yeah. 
the, the Prime Minister has described his work programme as the biggest back-to-work programme since the 1930s, but he knows it doesn't create jobs, it merely links people to vacancies. There are 6,500 people unemployed in Tottenham, 28,000 on out-of-work benefits and only 150 vacancies. What's his work programme going to do about that? As the Honourable Gentleman's right Honourable Gentleman says, the work programme plays a key role in helping prepare people for work, and that is absolutely vital. It also brings employers in so that they can offer jobs to those people. I've looked specifically at the issue of Tottenham because I know when I visited uh, his constituency with him that, yes, of course, there is a shortage of vacancies in the borough of Tottenham itself, but we've got to encourage people who live in London to be prepared to travel more widely to look for work. I think that is it's, it's absolutely absolutely vital and part of the work programme should be aimed at addressing exactly that. Graham Stewart. Mr Speaker, uh, rural fire services attend more primary fires and more road traffic accidents than do those in urban areas and yet receive less funding. This is typical of rural services across the piece where residents pay more and receive less. Will the Prime Minister meet with me and a group of other MPs from across the House representing rural areas to get a fairer deal for those in rural areas, particularly the rural poor? I'm very happy to meet with my honourable friend, and I think it is important that we may have a fair deal for rural areas. There are obviously very big differences, particularly in the use of retained firefighters, but I'm happy to meet him and discuss this issue. Mr Greg McClymont. The Leader of the Opposition that in nine months the Government's Business Growth Fund has invested in precisely two companies. Prime Minister, at a time when the economy is flatlining, is that good enough? What this government has done is cut corporation tax for every business in the country, has introduced enterprise zones to help employment, has actually increased the number of apprenticeships by 250,000 over the life of this parliament. They criticised the regional growth fund. There was no regional growth fund under Labour. That's the point. Let me just remind them. We inherited an economy with the biggest budget deficit in Europe and it is this government that is helping our economy through the international storms to make sure we remain safe in the UK. Jessica Lee. Thank you Mr Speaker. This week marks National Adoption Week. Does my right honourable friend agree that we must continue to do all that we can to support children in the care system and also to encourage prospective adoptive parents to come forward? I think my honourable friend makes an extremely important point in National Adoption Week. We really do need more parents to come forward as potential adopters and also as potential foster carers because there's a huge build-up of children in the care system who won't get that help unless people come forward. But I think it's important that government makes the pledge that will make the process of adoption and fostering simpler. It's become too bureaucratic, it's become too difficult, and as a result that is putting people off. I'm absolutely determined that we crack this. I think it is a sense of national shame that while there are 3,660 children under the age of one in the care system, there were only 60 adoptions last year. We're publishing now information on every single council so people can see how we're doing in terms of driving this vital agenda. Mr. Doherty. 
that this week yet another military academic has called for the reopening of the Defence Review and a leading military think tank has said that Britain is now cutting military equipment which might prove vital in the future. Will the Prime Minister finally listen to the voices of the defence community and reopen his deeply flawed Defence Review? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, had no Defence Review for ten years and now they want two in one go. It's absolutely typical of the opportunism of the party opposite. I think this is a day, as hostilities in Libya are coming to an end, that we should be praising our brave armed services and all that they've done. Guy Opperman. Schools in rural Northumberland were largely ignored by the previous government. With the school's budget rising from 35 billion to 39 billion in 2015, will the Prime Minister welcome the finance bid put forward by Prado Community High School in my constituency? I will certainly welcome that bid. It is important to note that because we are protecting the per-pupil funding, even at a difficult time for the economy and for public spending, that means the education budget is going to be rising and not falling. As ever, the Shadow Chancellor is wrong even when he's sitting down. <laughs> in addition, he talks even more rubbish when he stands up. But anyway, I digress. As well as the extra investment as well as the extra investment in the schools budget, there's also the opportunity for free schools, which I think are going to be a major reform in our country, bringing more good school places. So perhaps when a future Shadow Chancellor attends one of these schools, he'll learn a few manners. Some people are going to burst, they're getting so excited. It's a bit of a shame, a bit of a problem for them. Caroline Lucas. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister listen to both the campaigners outside Parliament today and the 80,000 people who have written to him in recent weeks and commit to becoming a leading advocate for the introduction of a Robin Hood tax at the G20 summit later this week? And will he make sure that the revenue is earmarked to tackle sustainable development and the growing climate crisis? What I say to the Honourable Lady is she knows I think there's widespread support for the principles behind such attacks, but it has to be it has to be adopted on a global basis. And let me just say this as, a, as I think quite an important warning to those who are pushing this so hard, which is this we must be careful that we don't allow other countries, including some other European countries, to use a campaign for this tax that they know is unlikely to be adopted in the short term as an excuse for getting off their aid commitments. We in this House, in this country, can be proud of the fact we're meeting our aid commitments. Don't let others use this tax as a way of getting off things that they promised. Tim Farron. Mr Speaker, world population passed 7 billion this week. That's an awful lot of mouths to feed. The UN also predicts that over the next 40 years, world demand for food will increase by 70%. Now, that ought to be, that ought to mean good news for farmers. But sadly, since 1990, Britain's capacity to feed itself has fallen by a fifth. Will the Prime Minister agree that this is a disastrous situation and will he urgently bring forward a credible strategy to grow Britain's farming industry to feed us all in the future? No, my honourable friend makes, a, makes an important point, which is it is true that we've seen our own food security decline and our own food production severely challenged over the last 10 years. I think it's important to remember that farmers are businesses and they need things done as other businesses do in terms of deregulation, uh, predictable uh, uh, income and all of those things. And this government is committed to make that happen, which will benefit particularly people in his own constituency. Clive Betts. Thank you, Mr Speaker. On the 13th of September 2010, when asked at the Community and Local Government Select Committee, when asked if the success of this government will be building more homes per year than were being built prior to the recession, 
The housing minister replied, yes, building more homes is the gold standard upon which we shall be judged. In which year or years of this parliament does the Prime Minister expect this gold standard to be achieved? What we've said is that we are going to expand the, the building of homes for social rent by actually increasing and reintroducing the right to buy, which the last government so scandalously run down. That is going to help. We're also, we're also going to make available government land so that builders can get on and build without having to buy that land and only have to pay when they've actually delivered the house. So we want to see an extra 200,000 homes built in that way, and that will give us a far better a record than the government which he represented. Order. Sir Peter Tapsell. Notwithstanding the uh, increasingly maniacal gesticulations of the Shadow Chancellor. <laughs> that in the middle of the world's biggest crisis, Britain is able to borrow at lower rates of interest than almost any other country in the world. As ever, as ever, it takes the father of the house to really bring the wisdom to the table, which is if we didn't have a proper plan for getting on top of our debts and our deficit, we wouldn't have 2.5% interest rates, which are the greatest stimulus our economy could have. Instead, we'd have interest rates like the Greeks, like the Spanish, like the Italians, and our economy would be hit. And do you know how you'd get interest rates like that? If we adopted the plans of the party opposite. Their plan is for an extra £87 billion of borrowing over this parliament. You do not solve a debt crisis by adding to your debts. And you can go on making your rather questionable salutes, but I have to say, it's time to take a primer. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.